0: This episode is presented by Gorgeous. Did you know that loyal customers are nine times more likely to convert compared to first-time shopper? That's why exceptional customer service is so important for your retention and growth. Gorgeous combines all of your communication channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone, all on a one platform and gives you an organized view of all tickets. This saves your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Book a demo at gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com today and mention the Consumer VC podcast for two months free. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is John Sherwin, the founder and CEO of Hydrant hydrant hydrates you faster and more efficiently than water alone. In this episode, you'll learn and we'll discuss part of health and wellness that I think has been overlooked, which is dehydration and how we're living in the dehydrated economy, why it's underserved, and as well, how he grew his business digitally, and why he decided to take hydrant into both Walmart and Whole Foods. Without further ado, here's John. John, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Good to catch up.
0: It's great to have you. Absolutely. It's gonna be fun to catch up. First, I want to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship?
1: I would say I have a a number of role models in my family who are entrepreneurs themselves. My dad and his dad, and my elder brother, all have kind of, in one way or another, worked outside of the regular job system, kind of started small businesses, worked for themselves. And, you know, when the time came, to kind of get a job. I, I did initially get a job. I worked in the Bay Area for a couple of years, but it was at a startup always with a view to learning as much as I could in order to support a future endeavor of my own. And I have a very supportive family and group of friends who you know want to see me succeed. So I think that's, that's what made it an easy choice for me to get into entrepreneurship. I didn't, there were no lawyers in the family or doctors. so There was no clear path to choose. Uh, so it was kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure.
0: Yeah, it's like, what's the traditional path? I don't know. The traditional path is entrepreneurship. So how did you end up founding um, Hydrant? What was the insight that you saw?
1: So for me, it was kind of a long journey from the insight to actually starting the business. The insight initially for me was in college. It was that I didn't understand dehydration or hydration properly, but it was causing problems for me. Once I did some reading, understood it better, I realized no one else understood it. And that the existing products on the market weren't great at solving the problem for consumers. It took me a few years to, you know, I went to the Bay Area, got some learnings in the uh, startup world before I realized, oh, actually, this is something that I'm still looking for. It still doesn't exist on the market. I should just make this, which is a big leap, given that I have no background in food and beverage whatsoever, uh, or CPG for that matter. But that was kind of the journey was It's an education component and then also a lack of seeing what I wanted in a product on the market.
0: When you were in college, what was the insight in that? What was um, like the aha moment and what you learned that others didn't about the difference between dehydration and and
1: hydration? So I went to Oxford University. We have an intense trimester system where you spend eight weeks at at university and then you have like a six-week break. And in those eight weeks, you are packing in a ton of socializing, a ton of studying, sports like everything is your your calendar is just rammed you kind of have to find a way to cope and still have fun still get good grades you know still play sports and for me I kind of would find myself just generally feeling pretty run down and getting sick mid-semester just like a head cold from from being all go 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 and I started to look for ways that I could kind of hack my way out of feeling that way and be able to perform at my best and I, I read and, and you know had friends recommend hydration as a way of you know staying ahead of the game. So I would start chugging a, a lot of water. And of course, that means I'm going to the restroom a lot. And eventually, this led to me experiencing charley horses or calf cramp muscles. Uh, sorry, calf muscle cramps. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? This makes no sense. I never got these before. Now I'm drinking a ton of water and I'm experiencing this. And a friend of mine who is an athlete said, well, this sounds like an electrolyte imbalance, like this is something we know about in the athletics world. And I was like, okay, cool. I was studying biology, so I started reading up on electrolytes, on hydration, and kind of just learning about the, the concept and realized that what I was doing was throwing off my body's fluid balance by drinking only water. And that actually if I was adding some electrolytes to, it would be a fundamentally different experience and it wouldn't cause that problem.
0: First of all, thanks for sharing that. It feels like one of those things where... When someone tells you that I'd imagine that hydration's the issue, you're like, wait, what? Something as basic as hydration, right? I mean, it's so true that so many people don't think about hydration. We kind of just think that we're always hydrated and don't think that something that what sounds so basic can have such a dramatic effect on your body.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, and and we see it even in just customer reviews. That that honestly is is part of what what brightens up my day on a regular basis is we pipe customer reviews straight into our, so our Company Slack channel, and you read them, and and some of them it is transformative. It's like, oh my gosh, I did not think when I set out to do this, you know, years ago that we'd be having this kind of an impact. But it's so cool to see, uh, where for some people it is just like that switch that sets off, and they're like, oh wow, this was the problem all along. Um, and that's why really I view the problem for us as a company is yes, we're selling product, but we're also educating people need to like understand that this could be the issue that's causing a lot of problems for them from an energy standpoint throughout the day.
0: Well, then how, when you first started, um, obviously you, you, you identified in college that there's a problem, not many people, maybe apart from athletes that really have like a firm understanding or grasp on this problem. You worked in tech for a couple of years in the Bay area. Um, you got to see and experience that. What, Um, what led you in terms of actually finding Hydrant that you wanted to devote your full time? And how did you also at the early stages, you then realize how how this fundamentally changed your life in terms of focusing on hydration. But talk to me a little bit about how you started Hydrant and how you also approach that customer education piece.
1: In terms of the approach to starting the business or, or, or maybe the why, which I think was the first part of the question. So for me, it was always, I'm solving a problem for myself and I'm easy to... Create a product for because I get real-time feedback loops just by tasting it myself, testing it on myself. That was kind of step one. Is I had bought every product available on the market, or so I thought, on the internet, in stores, from coconut water to sports drinks to even other powdered products. You know, many of, all of these products kind of still exist. It's just like everyone had a sort of what I'll call a negative externality attached to it, um, or a negative property, let's say. So either they tasted gross were completely ineffective, or they had artificial colors, flavors, and sweeteners, or in the case of uh, you know, the big incumbents were just like packed with sugar. For any of those reasons, I would feel guilty drinking it. Whereas, you know, you never feel guilty drinking water. And so for us, it was how can we make a product that like is fully supporting that water habit where you're drinking water and you're getting only benefits. There's nothing negative in the back of your mind where you're thinking, oh well, you know, this has 20 seven grams of sugar in it, I probably shouldn't have too many of these. Like, We just want to remove all of that guilt from the equation to enforce a positive habit for the customer. So that was one piece. The other piece was that, this is sort of a philosophical thing perhaps, growing up in in Europe, there's a lot more hurdles to jump through from a claims standpoint, from an education standpoint, to uh, talk about your products. Here in the US, especially in the supplement world, It's a little bit more of a wild west. Like people can be out out here kind of saying, hey, like there's this new ingredient, there's a study, and it says X, Y, or Z. And consumers don't know how to evaluate those claims. They don't know, hey, that study that they're referencing was on seven people and the conclusions weren't that good. And it was a fishing expedition, which is like a term for a study where they didn't know what they would find. They would just like look at some numbers and then draw a line, be like, oh, this is a strong conclusion. That was basically what my degree was. You know, I I studied biology, and part of that is you read academic journals and you figure out how they were, like, like what they could have done better in their research. And so, to me, the other piece—not only was I solving a problem for myself in going after this educational approach—it was how can we be that sort of source of truth in the market to consumers as we branch out towards health and wellness as a whole.
0: So how did you decide when you thought, hey, okay, I really want to tackle dehydration? And how did you decide what type of product you actually wanted to release? Like why didn't, for example, did you release a liquid?
1: Yeah, no, so that's a good question. I, had, I was very lucky in the early days to get connected with some folks in the CPG world who were you know, way further along in their journey, um, so, so other founders in the space. And I was able to sort of pick their brains around how would you approach this problem if you you were starting from day one or from square one, like I am now. And across the board, it was just like, hey, if you go into Liquid, you're in the distribution game. You're playing with other players in the space that have gatekeeping power. If you go Powder, there's no gatekeepers. You're able to ship it online. You can go direct to consumer, and there's no gatekeeping whatsoever. You can get started with much less capital. And so to me... That was more the journey I wanted to go on. I wasn't experienced at fundraising. And at that time, it was just me in the business. My co-founder, Jay, had not joined yet. Um, And he's really the one with the experience in that fundraising world. So, um, you know, I was able to get a little bit of friends and family money. I did a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. We got a little money to get things started there. And all of this was possible because in the powdered world, the production run sizes are smaller The costs to get a website up and running uh, are better and the margins are better as well, versus, hey, I'm going to make a big plastic bottle and I'm going to sell it to this distributor who's going to sell it to this end direct DSD store. And there's just so many steps in that chain. I I would say I'm a sort of product person, meaning I like to tinker and and make good products that make other people happy or solve a problem. And to me, I needed that quick feedback loop. You can't get a quick feedback loop in retail because everything has to be perfect before it gets to the shelf. On the website, I mean, we've had four versions of our core, like our lime product is our original. It's gone through four formulations over time and every one is better than the last.
0: No, that's awesome. Since you're obviously a product person, how did you go about developing a product when you didn't actually come from a food and beverage background?
1: Yeah, I mean, trial and error, I would say <laughs> it was step one. So, uh The thing I did have a background in was the functional science, right? The biology of how does this product work? What do we need to include or not? And so uh, I kind of built the process that we still use to this day with all of our products, which is um, doing our own systematic review and meta-analysis, kind of a mouthful, of existing research on any given topic. So, you know, back then it was hydration. Now we're looking at sleep. Our latest product we just launched was hydration plus sleep. And so, you know, we did the same thing on, on the sleep component of that. And what that is, is you're searching for every ingredient that has been used or linked to the function that you're trying to create a product for, or the problem you're trying to solve in this case, hydration. And I was going through these papers and, and I had hired a team to help me kind of pass through the data. because It was a ton of data. Um, and basically we're looking at papers that study hydration and say, okay, how reliable is this data? Are there statistical methods good? How many people are in the study? How strong are the conclusions? Uh, and like how, well-respected is the jump, which is not a super important metric usually, but we we wanted to build our own metadata that would allow us to say, okay, this is the perfect formula uh, from a functional standpoint to get people hydrated fast. And from that, I was able to build what I will call like a design spec for the product. It was like, we need this much sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. It needs to have this much sugar, but no more. And we're solving for an osmolality of less than 230 milliosmoles per kilogram. And that was the spec sheet. I could then go to a food scientist who has a skill set that I don't. Say, hey, this is what it needs to have in it. Let's make it taste good. Oh, and it needs to have these certifications and we don't want to use these ingredients. And like, let's go from there. And then they do rounds of, of tasting.
0: That makes sense. And on the tasting side, were you part of that tasting side or were you kind of letting like the food scientist give like the final thoughts on it and then you try it?
1: No, I was very much a part of the, of the process. My sister-in-law has a restaurant and um, she and her partners in the restaurant are chefs. And I would go to them to taste the product because I was like, I I need people with a seasoned palate who can help make this taste good. Um, And so I would get the samples from the uh, food scientist and I would go to this restaurant in their off hours and say, hey, like I need help. Here's this like, not a spreadsheet, but a sort of table. And I need people to fill out the pros and cons of all these different flavor profiles.
0: And all of this was happening, this was after you raised the money on Kickstarter, right?
1: Before. So this was after... Yeah, I had some friends and family money uh, very early on, had not done the Kickstarter yet. I did the Kickstarter, uh, it was Indiegogo actually, um, similar concept. I did that once the formula was locked and I knew who my manufacturing partner was going to be. Because once you close that, once you finish the funding, you want to be able to like, pull the trigger on the production run immediately. And really, that was what funded the production run.
0: Yeah, I had on Mateo, the founder of 8sleep, and he said that he did a, I think it was it was either Indiegogo or, or Kickstarter. I know they're very, very similar services, but it took him a long time to fulfill those orders because the product hadn't been uh, perfected. And so he said he took a long time delivering the orders that they already came in. So that makes sense in terms of you, once people actually invested on Indiegogo or funded your campaign, they were able to then have like a quick turnaround that I'm sure felt really, really good. So after Indiegogo, now you have product, out, what was your DTC strategy um, overall?
1: I think that's where this feedback loop comes in. So after the Indiegogo shipped those first orders, very serendipitously was introduced to my now co-founder, Jay. And Jay is an interesting story in and of it himself. And I'll, I'll get to your question directly, but this, this sort of feeds into it. So at that point, post running the production uh, of the product, I had very little cash. And I met my co-founder, Jay. Jay had just started at Wharton in the MBA program. He dropped out of that program and took his tuition money and decided like he, he felt that business school wasn't really a fit for him pretty quickly, that he should be starting a business. And he'd been thinking about the same problem. And, and we we shared a ton of um, overlap in terms of like the vision for this category. And so he dropped out, took his tuition money out and put it into the business instead. That then gave us the capital to get the digital paid media engine running. So effectively, we were able to say, okay, what are the different value props that people might be interested in using hydration for? What are the different audiences that we might be interested in targeting? Let's just go out and do a sort of multinomial test where there are all these different variables and we test them against each other and we see two months later, okay, are people buying coming back more frequently or less frequently if they are this type of customer and they bought the product because of this type of value proposition? So, for example, we might have gone after climbers and, and like, workout activities. That might be one of the groups. Or we could have gone after uh, an older population in the South for yard work, for example. Um, and, And we'd sort of, like, look through all of that data and figure out, okay, from this, clearly we should be going after this group first and tailoring our marketing to them.
0: Got it, got it. So you actually did growth marketing from day one or like after the Kickstarter campaign and um, and everything, but like that was like part of like the initial strategy.
1: Yes, I, I would say not directly after the Kickstarter. It was once uh, Jay joined the team and we had that, yeah, which was the sort of late summer of 2018. So, I mean, like September 2018, basically. Uh, that was when it really started. And yes, from, from day one, the strategy was very much like, we need to learn about customers. We need to learn about our product. We need to get feedback. And the fastest way of doing it is just you know, bring the customers in through Facebook, Instagram, uh, get product out to them and start collecting reviews, start to see like, what is the cost to acquire a customer who's into climbing? What does it cost to acquire a customer in their 20s versus in their 50s? Um, and so it was very data-driven.
0: I'm just curious. Who were the easiest customers to acquire?
1: I don't know if I have a demographic answer in terms of ease of acquisition. I do remember, though, that the hangover... Segment being particularly sort of low cost to acquire. And that's, I think, why you see a lot of people that there are a ton of brands who play in that space. They, in my experience, don't tend to get very large. Uh, there are a few exceptions to that rule, but it was one of these difficult decisions for us where we could see firstly, you have to be very careful with claims. Hangovers are regulated. So at no point can you use the word hangover in your ads. So we were like super risk averse there. Um, But we can still see that this group using it for this use case was doing well. But from a brand perspective, we're taking a moment in time where typically you feel guilty and associating our product with that. And that wasn't an association we wanted to make because we really view ourselves as a health and wellness brand. Do we want to take that moment of, I should have had like two drinks less last night and I feel terrible and have people associate like the, the whole experience of drinking a hydrant with that? And our decision, which was hard, was... Like, hey, the short-term wins here are not worth the long-term win of building a trusted brand, which was always the goal. Um, So that's like not go after this type of customer.
0: I'd love to also learn, like when I had on uh, Madeline Hayden, who's the founder of Nutpods, she was saying that Amazon reviews were like the best thing, like help shaped her packaging, help shaped just everything to do with her brand. I'm curious when you see Reviews, if it happened to have the same effect, whether it was Amazon or Facebook or what have you,
1: one hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like I said, we pipe reviews from our Shopify into our Slack channel. So we're con- I'm looking at those every day, going through the good and the bad. The good ones, you know, uplifting. The bad ones are just a gift of feedback for how we could do things better. The other thing, and, and Amazon is good too, right? Amazon is in some ways less filtered because you'll get the the vitriol along with the very good, and it's helpful to hear from it. Like, it would be so much worse if people just didn't say anything. I would love the customer to come in and say, Hey, like, I didn't like the taste, it wasn't sweet enough, or um, you know, it wasn't tart enough, or didn't mix as well as I'd like, or didn't rip open as well as I'd like. You know, it, it helps alert us to things we could be doing a better job of. The other thing I would just sort of add or build on, on that idea of looking at reviews is we also look at comments on our Facebook ads or any any ads that we're running, because often those people are giving you insights on why they don't purchase. If you look at reviews, you're only getting insights from the people who initially purchased. And that, you know, there's some positives to that strategy as well. But for us, we were also interested in like getting data on, okay, why are people not buying? And to get that, you have to go one step higher in the funnel pre-purchase and say, okay, what are people complaining about? And there were some really good insights for us. I mean, there's still are in our Facebook ad comments.
0: Did you find on what people are complaining about, did you find that it had more to do with the taste or the actual effects of Hydrant?
1: It's usually taste. And, and you know, that's been a journey for me. I, I think when I was early in this journey of you know putting myself out there with what is effectively a creative endeavor, right? We make a product and it tastes a certain way and it functions a certain way. And then you get someone who comes in and is like, oh, like I didn't like the taste at all. It's like a gut punch. Um, but after going through that now for, for three years, it's like, oh, okay, I figured it out. You can't please everyone. Like it is it is impossible to please everyone with the taste, texture, you know, all, all of the elements of your product. So you just have to kind of figure out, okay, who are the people that will like this? How do we find more of them? And in our case, you know, I mean, I, I can share one of the biggest issues for us was sugar. So sugar plays a functional role in hydration, um, but you want just a little bit. You don't want too much. And this like, balance is a very difficult thing to market around because the way the world works now is moderation isn't sexy. You either want like zero grams of everything or a lot of grams of something like protein. And so we were playing in this world of, hey, we have uh, four grams of added sugar in our hydration mix. And that four grams, if you compare it to you know, a leading sports drink, you're looking at 32 grams in a, in a similar size um, with less electrolytes. So our ratio of electrolytes to sugar was way better. But still, in the ads, we'd get people just like, I remember <laughs> saying, like, sugar is poison, and using like skull and crossbones emojis. I'm like, how, how can people be having such a strong reaction to these four grams that are speeding up the process of hydration? Like, they're there for a reason. And eventually, we kind of realized, look, this is a clear signal that we should be making a product that also like that caters to this audience. Even though the sugar is there for you know, a functional reason in the product, at a certain point, you have to understand, Like I'm not so proud of the science that I'm going like, to stop a customer from trying the product. So we created the no added sugar line, which, yeah, zero, zero grams of added sugar. And that now caters to a different customer segment and tastes slightly different to our core product. And it's doing really well. And I'm excited to bring those people into the fold and give them all of the other benefits of our product.
0: Wanted to also talk about COVID a little bit. What was life like during COVID for you, also for Hydrant, and maybe if you had to make any pivots, what was kind of going through your mind when it came to March last year?
1: We probably had the same emotions as, as everyone. I, I don't think there was a unique piece to it in that um, we're just like, what is going on? What is this going to mean for us as a business? Uh, and I think everyone took too long to respond. There were, there were a few very smart people who were ahead of the curve and made moves you know, in February because they saw where this was going. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to say I was one of them, but no, we, we were, like everyone else, I think it was March 14th when the uh, sort of, hey, go home and stay home uh, sort of guidance came out, which is what we did. We had just signed the lease on a new office in New York, which sucks. Um, love the office, but the fact that we signed right at that moment in time where previously we were in a month-to-month thing with WeWork, we're a fast-growing team. You know, we were eight people going into the pandemic. We're 22 people now, and we like seeing that future and being tied to this this real estate contract <laughs> was was tough. Um, but other than that, I have to say we were remarkably lucky. The the biggest impact on the business was that a lot of retail reviews were pushed back. You know, there were in those first couple of months, retailers were saying, "Hey, we are only." Looking at the absolute core products that people need to survive, so it's got to be grocery. Uh, so it's like bottled water and food. You guys are like we sit in the whole body category in Whole Foods, for example. So it's sort of supplement adjacent, and that was not considered, you know, an area of focus. So you know, we were in Whole Foods in New York. Their traffic just whoosh, went off a cliff. Um, And they were limiting how many people could be in the store and that sort of thing. So we definitely experienced some effects, but of course, like the majority of our business is online. And so that piece sort of offset the negatives we got from the real world.
0: What was your, um, or what is your retail strategy? I know now you're in Walmart, which is amazing. How do you think about retail, especially during these times?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a weird time to be in retail. I think the way we think about it, is we want to be as data-driven as possible. So we want to try a number of different channels and kind of see what's working and what's not working. And generally, we want to put resources behind a test enough to sort of say, is this a thumbs up or is this a sort of like hold for a while or a thumbs down, this channel's not for us or this particular chain is not for us. I think for us, though, given that we've spent some time building brand online, getting into retail and just building that brand awareness and getting that exposure is such an important piece of sort of spreading your wings and going from French consumer only to being able to, for example, run, let's say, a national TV campaign. We did that once during COVID when ad inventory was really cheap. Um, but at that point, we only had distribution in Whole Foods Northeast and on our website and on Amazon. And so like in that scenario, we probably got, I don't know, Let's say, a few hundred thousand eyeballs on our content, but not that many people necessarily were going to go from their TV, go to our website, place an order, or go to Amazon search, place an order. But however, if we were in all of the Walmarts that we are now, all of the CVS stores, the GNCs, HEBs of the world, we would have been able to pick up some of that demand from running those ads. So it, it opens up these more broad awareness campaigns as a tool for us. And you know, I think the trend we're seeing in the market is, Powder Hydration is here to stay, and it's growing very fast, and, and we want to make sure that we're a part of that wave. So that, that that's kind of like speaks to the strategy a bit.
0: Was it also tough, since you were really defining or starting a new category, convincing retailers of this new category?
1: Yes and no. I think maybe in the very early days it was. At this point, you know, we've seen the sale of two of the big players in the space to massive companies, uh, which is very validating. And at this point, like every buyer is aware of what's going on. There's no buyer who's like, oh, what is this powdered hydration mix? Where does this go? They now are figuring out their shelf sets, figuring out where in the store it belongs. Yeah, basically solving for their customer uh, and, and for their velocity. So yes, I would say early on, two years ago, it was probably a little bit tricky, but now not at all.
0: Just think about the retailer, especially with Walmart, since you're in Walmart nationally, and Walmart's in a lot of secondary and tertiary markets, how did you think about building brand awareness and building brand trust with customers that are located in secondary and tertiary markets that might not be familiar with the Hydrant brand online?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's a problem with trying to figure out the transition from being direct consumer only, where you can tell really rich stories about the product and about how it works and, and all of that stuff, is a tricky one. And and no one on our team initially had that retail experience. We, we, we now have a retail team who are great. And, you know, we've gone through a bit of a packaging redesign approach to try and build that trust at shelf. Because it, you have, I think the rule is three seconds to get someone's attention and to get them to want to put it in your basket. So like, in those three seconds, how are you managing all of the different thoughts that are going through someone's head and the considerations they're making? Um, so for us, it was like, redoing our packaging to some extent and we've had to take a really close look at price as well so price, packaging um, and, and making sure that those things that align oh and pack size is the other one um, that's partially to do with what other people on the shelf are doing um, but you have to figure out okay you know in a tertiary market in a Walmart for example what is the ideal price point and pack size that you want to be on the shelf at and those are things that in the e-com world I could change the pack size within you know a night, I could double it. And you say, oh, we're going to take two packs together. Great, we've doubled it. Let's see like, how this affects the business. At retail, you just, you just don't have that, that ability. You have to go through a whole buying cycle to change the pack size. And um, it's a slow-moving beast. It takes a lot to get used to it. Um, and you know, I'd say we've had a ton of learnings in this past year. It's been a weird year to learn due to COVID, but um, we are coming out swinging and just continuing to, to like, open more and more doors.
0: I love that. I love that. Since you're in both Walmart and Whole Foods, and those customers, speaking very generally, are can be quite different. Whole Foods typically is, is much more maybe the premium customers that used to p- uh, paying premium prices. Do you approach packaging, how you group products differently when it comes to those consumer segments?
1: So the quick answer is no. And the way I'll frame it is we're small and fast growing. And so when we first approached Whole Foods, we had a total of three SKUs. The grapefruit, the lime, and the blood orange hydration mixes, which are the three that are in Whole Foods Northeast. By the time we got to Walmart, we now had energy SKUs. We, uh, I think, also had immunity SKUs at that point. And in this past you know, few months, we've also launched a sleep product. So like, what we are... To a customer is different to what it was when we were just in Whole Foods. So um, what we have on the shelf is, is subsequently different as well. So Walmart, we have we have one of our energy products in there, along with those core hydration ones. And I, I think we defer to a buyer to some extent to know what their customer is going to want. And they and they really do. Those buyers are looking at all of the data they can to make the right decisions within their shelf set. And you know, I'm not going to know their customer better than they are. If they say, "Hey, look, this one's not going to move, but that one is really going to move," so for example, like the no added sugar hydration or the with sugar hydration, that's the kind of decision where I would say, "Buyer, you tell me what's better for your customer."
0: That makes a lot of sense to just rely on the actual buyer to figure out. Okay, these are all the products I sell. Um, which ones do you actually want, or would actually appeal to your customers? That's very cool. Very cool.
1: We give them. We give them a little bit of our own data as well. We say, "Hey, like this. This is a bestseller." Uh, and, and this one is not a bestseller, like, make sure you add that into your calculus, but we definitely want them to have a seat at the table in, in making those decisions, yeah. It's
0: a very collaborative process. Yeah. What was your approach at the very beginning, why you chose to fundraise, and how you thought about as well picking your partners?
1: Yeah, so I, I have to firstly caveat all of this by saying my co-founder Jay deserves uh, far more of the credit for the fundraising than I do and for figuring out that strategy. But I'll, I'll speak to it as well as I can as I am in the room and involved as well. Um, so I think, firstly, you have to make that decision very early in the journey. Is are we a bootstrapped, relatively slow, but sustainable growth company? Or are we going for the, like, let's go fast and break things, I guess, to steal the Facebook phrase. And for us, we both felt pretty, pretty clear that we saw the opportunity in the category. We could see that it was heating up and that the time to move was like yesterday. There was no time to wait and move slowly if we wanted to build a big business and have a lot of impact. So for us, raising money was the obvious choice. Uh, and so what we did is set out pretty much immediately after my co-founder had joined, and it certainly helped that he put his business school tuition money in. You know that, that shows a level of conviction around the idea and the team, uh, and at that point the team was just the two of us, that gets other people excited. They can see, okay, something's going to happen here. So initially, um, we turned to a group, like a network of angels. And I I don't mean like one of these network groups where you go and you pitch in front of a number of angels. It was literally like people who we knew or were connected to who were interested in the idea and wanted to back us. Um, And again, credit here largely to my co-founder. But from there, we met the uh, Sixers Innovation Lab, who were sort of what I would call the institutional money in that first round we did. And they came in and effectively sort of matched what we had Got from all of our angels, and that was awesome because they brought with them like one extra kind of stamp of authority just by having that brand associated with them, and also with that we got the mentorship of a guy called Seth Berger, who was the founder of Ant one and so we were going down to philly you know a day a week maybe and working very closely with the group down there on what decisions are we making, how could we be doing this better um, so it was a really exciting time and that was the start of everything and where those learning iterations started kicking in like at an incredible speed. We were deciding, okay, like, what's the second player going to be? How quickly should we be doing a, a second line, like the energy line? What should the second line be? And so on and so forth. And they were very involved in that decision-making. So hugely grateful to them for that. Uh, and then as we've grown and like the market has kind of proved out that, hey, it's not just two guys with a powder that they're selling it's now sort of a company and they have multiple product lines and they have traction um the conversation becomes quite different in that scenario you know if if i think about the series a round for example which was back in uh late 2019 in that example you're kind of a team that the investor is making a team bet plus a category bet so they're looking at okay what have you done so far uh what like do we believe in you as operators of this business and and the sort of vision that you have for it and does that vision align with our view of this product category growing and again you know powders functional powders as a space is growing very quickly um, and so that that's kind of the intersection of of what we're asking of investors there is like hey look at us and look at the space and make your decision on whether you think we're backable or not um, and so that that was really The Series A round, and and I would say, you know, the most recent round, which doesn't really have a name, but uh, is is more just like a a continuation of that.
0: That's awesome. That's really cool. What do you think? That's one thing that you think investors might misunderstand about being a CEO of a CPG consumable company.
1: I think you know, it it always comes down to have they sat on the side of the table that we're on. Do they sort of have the empathy for the types of problems that we're dealing with? So that would be like the the simplest version of the answer. The day-to-day, I might be dealing with, you know, a freelance graphic designer on Upwork one day and then going into a board meeting an hour later. And it it might be that something was royally screwed up that hour before. And and, and there's no way of drawing the line between those two things. Like now I'm dealing with freelance designers from Upwork a lot less, but it's kind of like the mundane and these like, the zooming in and zooming out that is required on a, an hourly basis is exhausting. And that's something that is, you know, that's part of the job, right? Um, and I don't know to what extent all of the VC world is sort of necessarily aware that it's not that I have, um, you know, a number of minions that can help me with this stuff, like we have a team, they're awesome. But even with that, like I've got to be in and out of the weeds on a regular basis
0: someone told me that being a CEO sometimes is doing all the things that other people don't want to be doing.
1: I'd say it's pretty accurate.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so understanding that as well from an investor perspective, I think that could be um, really useful and helpful. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: Okay, I'm going to go with Shoe Dog, the Nike book. So I, I kind of always knew I was going to get into this world of entrepreneurship. And for better or worse, the personal and professional are extremely linked. Um, You know, it's something where I wake up, I'm probably thinking about hydrant before I go to bed, probably thinking about hydrant on some level. It's very difficult to separate life and work. So this is a cop-out way of saying, I'm going to give you just that one book. The reason I like Shoe Dog is it kind of illustrates the tying of the company to the founder's life and, and how like inextricably linked those two things are. And I mean, he just writes so well. It's a compelling story, well written. Uh, It makes you root for what is now an absolutely massive company that dominates. People still root for them um, in a way that you don't find people rooting for like the biggest beverage companies. And I think that's an amazing thing. And it just shows how good they are at storytelling.
0: No, absolutely. Shoe Dog is the most recommended book on this show. That's great. That's great. What's the best piece of advice that you've received?
1: Early on, when it was just myself working on the business, I would say I'm somewhat introverted. I don't necessarily present that way, but I don't love to go to networking events and I'm not necessarily putting myself out there. I'm not, I'm very good at sales. And one of my early advisors basically said, Look, you know, you're on your own, you're doing this, you need to solve for getting like some connections in this world very quickly. And the best thing you can do here is. If you're not going to go out to these events and and you know get drinks and and do all this stuff and call email people constantly, open every channel of accessibility to you that you can. So that's like put posts on Angel List, put like put posts up on Twitter and and everything you can to get people to understand. Hey, the doors are open. Like, come on in and and say hey. And to me, it was a pretty small thing, but I think it really did make a difference. And I, and I do think that that advice helped me to eventually meet Jay, who's now my co-founder. And obviously, that was a pretty seminal moment in our trajectory. So, yeah, I would say that was like a, an important piece of advice given the timing. Uh, it may sound trivial to some, but it, it was super helpful at the time.
0: I actually love that piece of advice um, where it's like, hey, maybe I'll share my thoughts online or share what I'm learning online so other people can can see what I'm doing and what I'm working on um, rather than nothing wrong with this, rather be the one that actually goes to networking events and maybe might you know interact with people in those kind of areas. I think that's really valuable. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders who are currently building?
1: Chip Foster. So I wasted, I would say five to six months on product development at the beginning of the hydrant journey because I was searching for perfection and I was embarrassed to ship something sooner. I mean, this is pretty cliche. I don't think I'm the only person out there saying this, but it's so true. You never think these things will impact you, but I ended up working with two different food scientists. The first one, there were six months of delays and the progress from version one to version like 31 of the product, which was the one that eventually got launched. um, was minimal. We should have just launched like version 5 and got that feedback immediately from real customers. Because even when we launched version 31, we got feedback from customers saying, hey, you know, it's not dissolving perfectly. Or hey, it's still a little bit too salty. And once you get enough of the feedback, you like, okay, there's clearly a trend here. We should make a tweak. And then we would make that tweak and put the second version out into market. So it's just go faster. Don't be afraid of that. Like, Yes, you've got to clear a certain hurdle of done enough. But Past that, you're better off getting real world feedback and just moving quicker to get get the product into the world.
0: No, that's a great piece of advice because I mean I quite agree. Let your customers decide, right? Let them let them decide on what flavors is and being able to actually ship faster so they actually get the product and don't worry too much about perfection. Just worry about that it's good enough, and then your customers can always get back to you, and then you can always of course make adjustments. And especially the early stages too, you're probably shipping out such low quantities that I'd imagine that that. That you can be quite agile when it comes to it. My last question to you is: What's next for Hydrate? You talked about uh, the sleep category that you're that you're going in, but 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 what types of new products do you have? What types of new products are you thinking about, um, and maybe different spaces just to help people?
1: You know, I have to be fairly secretive about our product roadmap specifics uh, wise, but I can I can certainly talk in, in generalities. We've got now four main product lines: hydration, energy, sleep, and immunity. And the way we're thinking about products is we try and build our products to help people within their routine or rituals throughout the day. So we talk about waking up in the morning and drinking a hydrant, getting hydrated because through the night you dehydrate, you lose water, you don't necessarily know it when you wake up. And we as a sort of society have been conditioned to think, oh, I'm tired, I need caffeine versus hydration. So it's finding other moments like that where, okay, people feel a certain way and they want to feel a different way. How can we make a product that fits into that daily cycle of, you know, commuting, getting to the office, going through those first few meetings after lunch? And how can we bring that higher level of scientific rigor to the products people are taking so that they have a better experience overall? So the short answer is, what are the other moments in the day when we can help people feel the way that they want to feel? Sleep being a really good example of an evening one where, you know, it's a little bit, it may feel a little bit of of a step away from hydration, but we got feedback from customers saying, Hey, I drink this before bed on the original product and I love it. I sleep really well. Um, They were telling us like, I have to wake up to pee less. And this was not why we made, made the original product. This was not the use case, but they were telling us what the use case was and like, well, why don't we make a product that solves exactly that use case and like doubles down on it. And so we did. And you know, it's doing really well. So those are the kinds of insights that drive our product roadmap. Um, it's really like customers telling us how we can do better. Um, you know, what those other problems are for them.
0: John, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Of course. Yeah, good to catch up, Mike. Thanks for
0: having me on. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with John. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host Mike, on Twitter at MikeGelb, and also follow for episode announcements at consumervc. Thanks for listening, everyone.